Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the DXM podcast. I am Colborn Bell, uh, and this is a Dementi Museum of Crypto Art production. We are here today with artist Kyle McDonald. Kyle, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, absolute pleasure. We are honored to have you. We're going to start where we start with everybody and just give the mic to you uh, and let you tell uh, the audience anything you would like to share about yourself, your practice, uh, and how we got here today. Sure. So uh, my name is Kyle McDonald, and uh, I'm an artist working with code and technology and often looking at kind of social implications of new technologies thinking of ways that we can kind of repurpose them, appropriate them, hack them, um, and uh, build some kind of future that we're actually excited about instead of one that's just sort of foisted upon us. Um, and yeah, recently for the last uh, year and a half or so, I've been thinking a lot about the crypto space and Ethereum especially. Um, but before that, um, my practice has ranged, you know, across surveillance technologies to machine learning um, to generative art really early on. And I even come earlier from that from a music background, um, making lots of uh, kind of experimental electronic music and weird interactive stuff for more improvisational performative contexts. And um, yeah, my practice is always evolving. Sometimes it takes like a big, uh, Kind of installation-y form and other times it's like more conceptual and uh performative yeah yeah i'll, I'll say just the body of work is impressive it's diverse uh it's it's at times very funny it's very deep and contemplative and um i really enjoyed just like going through the website you've done a great job outlining it so i would encourage people to do that um Maybe we jump into some of your, your recent projects. Um, you want to just grab one and we can dive into it? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, um, the, there's this kind of trio recently I've worked on around crypto, uh, three projects, Ethereum emissions, uh, crypto therapy and amends. And um, they started sort of when I was talking to a friend in late 2020 um, about uh, the proof of work mechanism for Ethereum and, uh, you know, this kind of fact of life that un up until very, well, until very soon, uh, Ethereum has been and will continue to be, um, kind of running 10 million GPUs around the world 24 seven to keep itself kind of secure, um, from attacks. And that was connected to something else that we'd been thinking about, which was, um, the emissions connected to machine learning, like um, these big machine learning models, like uh, text prediction models or um, image generation models, you know, that takes a lot of energy to train them. And that energy is not always sourced from uh, renewable resources. So um, we're trying to understand, you know, as artists, when we work with these image generation models, um, what is our co contribution to the climate when we do that? Is this something that's sort of like, relatively clean and it's just like you know using our laptop or is it something that is sort of unduly uh high emissions like you know taking an airplane or um you know shipping some really large sculpture across the country um and when we found out that ethereum uses the same kinds of gpus to do its uh kind of to have its security work um as machine learning and deep learning uses to train its models then yeah, we tried to basically understand 
what portion of that emissions were we responsible for as artists and what were the actual numbers on those emissions? So I, I basically spent about a year doing research to understand what the emissions were for Ethereum itself and uh, kind of counting up all the different things that are involved from the types of mining rigs that are used to, uh, you know, the overhead in the data center when you've got lighting and AC, um, the different types of power supplies, uh, you know, where the workers are actually located, where the farms are located, how, you know, I was like translating Chinese state documents <laughs> describing the energy mix in South China and Yunnan and Sichuan provinces. And like, I was really, uh, yeah, in there pretty deep trying to get numbers here that people could actually feel like there was some reliability to it. Um, and that was the focus of that project, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, it's, that is a, a monumental undertaking, right? Both because, <laughs> <laughs> both because uh, you know, the, there's a ton of misinformation, and I'm sure, you know, the quality of information isn't great. And, you know, this was kind of a very uh, core debate point that did fracture a lot of the community. There were a lot of opinions on either side. Um, so, I mean, given this research, perhaps maybe broadly, where, where have you landed? How do you feel? Is it yeah. ethical to do something, you know, is it ethical to mint an NFT? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, but I think it's also the, it's a, it's a good question, but I think it's also misdirection in some ways. Um, it's really tempting to ask whether it's ethical as an individual to do this specific thing or that specific thing, but really the answer for pretty much everything you could ask is like, no, no. it's not yeah. ethical. Like pretty much everything we do is not like ever fundamentally ethical because we're involved in this very unethical system of exploitation, which is capitalism in the first place. Right. right. You can't really escape that and like do an ethical thing inside of it. Um, right. But you can kind of reduce your harm a bit in some ways. And I think if you do want to reduce your harm as much as you can, this is probably not one of the things that you want to be doing. Um, that said, like uh, you need to understand it relative to the other th kinds of things you can be doing. Like um, I know, uh, you know, Joni Lemercier, for example, uh, light artist, French light artist. Um, he has worked with NFTs and was thinking like maybe the trade-off for him is uh you know, he's very climate conscious and thinking a lot about his, the emissions of his studio. And he was really trying to figure out, okay, if I can uh, mint some NFTs and make as much money from that as I would have from doing a lot of international travel, maybe that's worth it. Maybe that's the way right. to do it because I can actually like find some relative reduction in my emissions. Um, and there's an argument to be made there, like in some cases uh, that might actually be possible. You know, I know, um, for example, here in Los Angeles, Rafik Anadol has made some huge sales with his NFTs um, yeah. and the, you know, on proof of work chains and uh, the emissions associated with those huge sales are probably way lower than it would be to like run any of his installations with like multiple projectors for 24 seven, you right. know, and all the shipping and construction. And um, so that part gets a little complicated, but in general, I would say like the thing that most artists don't understand is that these, this kind of proof of work system, like if you look at 
Bitcoin and Ethereum combined, the total amount of energy that's used is more than the entire internet. Like, you know, if you, I heard someone say the other day, if uh, like Ethereum, uh, sorry, if Bitcoin was Burj Khalifa, then Ethereum would be like, uh, you know, the World Trade Center in terms of like height and then proof of stake, like after Ethereum transitions, um, it becomes like a screw. (laughs) That's the relative. And I think that's the important thing to remember is like the huge difference between like what's possible with a non-proof-of-work network in terms of the energy use versus Mm. a proof-of-work network. Um, It doesn't have to be this way. And to just accept it and kind of roll over, I think Mm. is a a little bit of like a weak position. We don't have to do that. We we can find other systems that don't use the same amount of power as the entire internet to serve like at most maybe a few million people who are interested in NFTs and Web3 and DeFi and all that compared to the whole internet, which is like, you know, you've got basically Google, like the entirety of Google, all of Google services, all of Google cloud, that's about the same amount of energy as, um, as Ethereum. So it's like Google somewhere around 18 terawatt hours per year. And right now Ethereum's around 22 terawatt hours per year. And, uh, you know, Google's doing like 50,000 searches every second, 50,000 yeah. YouTube videos, like all the emails in the world, like surfing big portions of the internet through Google Cloud. And then Ethereum, if you look at it, it's doing like every second, it's about 15 transactions. <laughs> and that's You're it. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah. I, I think that was the main surprise for me, you know, as I went through all of this, was just realizing the huge discrepancy in scale between what a what an efficient system looks like which is most of the internet and what an inefficient system looks like, which is proof of work. And also understanding not just the numbers, but realizing like, okay, this is something that can't be made more efficient by its very nature. Um, the way proof of work is designed is that basically the amount of elect- the amount spent on electricity is uh, the amount of value that's created. So, uh, it's completely irrelevant whether you can make like uh, your hardware faster or something like that. Um, right. If maybe you as an individual can make it faster, you can extract a little bit more of that value for yourself temporarily. But um, ultimately, the value across the whole network that's created is equal to the amount of money spent on electricity. And that's it. It's just a machine for converting electricity into digital currency. So. Yeah. And have you ever been to one of those those mining farms? No, I really want. There's a bunch in West Texas that I want to visit, which would probably be the closest, um, and also North Dakota. But yeah, and you're in you're in New York, I'm right? New York. So there's actually some in upstate as well, um, and they've been. Uh, that's a really interesting case because with upstate New York, there's a funny mix of um, mostly Bitcoin mining, uh, yep. and some of them are powered off of the kind of excess hydro energy that's available in upstate but then others are powered off of reopened coal power plants that yeah. previously had shut down because they became you know um uh unprofitable and then bitcoin came around and they're like we can make it profitable <laughs> and they just open them back up and now you've got you know um like in the finger lakes around a uh, greenage you've got um communities that are basically like fighting to keep those power plants from reopening because they besides being you know coal power plants that we don't need to reopen they're also you know causing a lot of environmental damage with the um heating the water and all kinds of stuff so 
Yeah. It's a bit of a mess. Yeah, uh, they're insane. I, I yeah. went to one. I went to one in Iceland that was geothermal, just stacks and stacks. I went to one in Washington State that was yeah. hydropowered. Yeah. Uh, ended up failing. I mean, it, it's just one is inconceivable to think about. Um, so the all of yeah. it together is is. I mean, the, is did the one that you went to in Iceland was that Enigma? Uh, that would have been at least four and a half years ago. So I don't, I don't remember. Okay. Cause there's, yeah. um, th that would have been around the right time, but, uh, there's this facility in Iceland called Enigma, which uses, it actually uses more electricity than all of the homes in Iceland, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is pretty wild. Uh, yeah. And there's, and there's some argument. I was just reading, um, yesterday, some of like, the really early discussion on um, the kind of Bitcoin mailing list uh, where you've got, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto still involved in discussion and people were talking about like sort of long-term outcomes around 2009, 2008. They were like, what's going to happen with, well, sorry, 2009, 2010. They were like, what's going to happen with uh, Bitcoin when it starts to really blow up? And, um, you know, people are guessing like, well, in some places, you know, we can just use Bitcoin miners as heaters and it's basically free energy because you can't really uh, heat things more or less efficiently. Like heat is just something that's generated efficiently from electricity. Right. Um, and there are some weird arguments like that to be made that maybe, I don't know, it basically comes back to this question of whether you think this kind of digital currency generated by proof of work is something that we need in the first place. And if it's not, then there's no reason to be doing any of this. Um, but yeah, if it is, maybe there are some situations where you've got like renewable energy and you're heating a home and then it kind of comes out for free. Yeah. So before we kind of go into the specifics of those three projects, yeah. um, maybe we can take a step back and kind of look, because I think this is a, a macro trend that exists across your work is, you know, waking people up to some of the externalities that may not be perceived in using uh, the, these technologies is, is that, I mean, that's certainly what I try to do in my work is take like circuitous routes to get people to realize like alternate things and kind of do it on themselves. It is kind of a form of inception. Mm -hmm. uh, would you agree with that statement? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, that's like one of, the roles I see that's fundamental to being an artist is basically like having a cultivating a little bit of an outsider perspective, a slightly alternative perspective that is something that is not accessible to everyone so easily so that you can show like a different way of navigating the world, different way of kind of working through some of these kind of complicated things that we sort of take for granted usually. Yeah, because I think you can beat people over the head with facts, but at some point there is no, like just the right. word climate change. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's a fatigue to yeah, it. Yeah, I, I like to think of it as like artists are sort of the mechanism for providing new intuition for society. Um, and, right. you know, you have like scientists and researchers who basically provide new explanations. Um, you have like journalists who provide new information. Um, you but like artists, I think we are the ones that get to provide new intuition. Um, we get to give people like a chance to experience something maybe viscerally or to mm -hmm. like give them a framework for like feeling a certain way when they experience something or having an idea of like how things should be or could be. Um, and there's no one else really that provides that. Uh, 
there's a little bit of overlap maybe with what designers do in some contexts, but um, that's a different thing. So maybe that's like a crack for us to slip into crypto therapy. Exactly. Yeah, totally. So this crypto therapy yeah. project, I mean, I was trying to figure out like, wow, uh, there's a huge debate online and amongst my friend group, like people trying to figure out what they should do about all this crypto stuff. It seems like a lot of them are, you know, making money and then the other ones are not so sure about it. And some people are really against it. And how do we resolve this? Mm. I just had this feeling like, you know, um, we're all artists in the end. Like we got to get through this somehow. Like this may become a new art market within the digital art space. That is a fundamental piece of what it means to be a digital artist or new media artist. Mm. Or it might just be a bubble for a year and then it disappears. But either way, we're going to all be on the other side somehow at some point, And we got to figure out how to work together there and not like hate each other in the end. <laughs> so um, I wanted to have uh, an event where we could talk about some of those feelings because like basically Twitter and the internet is like the worst space to talk about feelings ever. <laughs> You're totally. just going to be like destroyed by people who kind of make straw men of what you're trying to express and like treat any hint of vulnerability as a weakness mm -hmm. and just take advantage of that. So um, set up this, uh, <clears throat> set up this event uh, with Stripe Festival. Um, and we basically ran three sessions, two in person, one online, um, in collaboration with uh, Dr. Michelle Kasperjak, um, which, yeah, we ran in collaboration with this, uh, this uh, therapist. So we basically s talked to the therapist and said, like, what, um, how could we run this session that's sort of like a typical group therapy session where we get people to talk about their feelings in a way that actually makes some progress here? Um, and she gave us a lot of great advice and framework. And then we kind of ran it ourselves. And um, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. It was like, um, uh, yeah, we basically, I don't know. I guess one of the things I was surprised by was like how, uh, how against NFTs and crypto everyone was that sort of was just visiting. Um, all the people who were just at Stripe Festival because they liked art, you know, they were like, what is the, why are, why are people doing this? Like, what's the purpose of all this stuff? They couldn't wrap their head around it. And it wasn't like they didn't understand it. It wasn't like crypto was too difficult for them to understand. They got it. They were like, this is the art market, but we're doing it in the digital space. This is currency, but we're doing it without any kind of centralized regulation or controls. Mm. But why? <laughs> they... I think maybe it feels a little different when you have like an when you have an art scene that has even a little bit of funding, like not in the U.S. And when you have a government that you feel like is working for you even a little bit, again, not like in the U.S., um, right. you start to wonder, like, why do we need to break down all of these like systems of centralized control and support? Because they feel less like control and they feel more like support. Um, right. And yeah, but there was there were like two there was like one or two people out of the 50 something people who came who were like, Oh yeah, I'm really into Cardano or <laughs> there was like, <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. funny. Um, yeah. The, yeah. So that was really funny. And then we had this one online session, um, which was really interesting because it was more, 
more friends, people I'd know, I knew and knew their stories. And it was more of a mix of, you know, half and half, like people who had really made it big from NFTs and some people who are super critical of NFTs. Mm. Uh, and it was great to just hear everyone's perspective and anxieties and really talk through it. And yeah, I mean, again, my goal from that session was to have kind of a bonding moment and build yeah. some new connections and understanding um, because I think a lot of the discussion has been siloed and um, it can be hard to express the things that actually matter or to hear the kind of opposing opinions that you need to hear. Um, yeah. I mean, these, these online algorithms just drive you into your own echo chamber, right? You yes. just hear the same thing again and again. That one really resonated with me because I was playing kind of just given my background, I was playing both like crypto financial advisor and therapist to a lot yeah. of artists. Yep, um, yep. A lot of people's obviously first time through a cycle like this, a lot of artists first time encountering any sort of yep. financial success, <laughs> how to like market, how to, and, and it was hard. It was like super hard, super overwhelming. A lot of things happening very fast. A lot of like comparison with peers. Uh, and you really just like got to put those blinders on and just do the thing for you. Yes. Um, yeah. So you know, I think everybody is, is kind of reconciling with that right now. And we're certainly in a, a monster hangover period. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it's interesting to hear also that kind of the, the outside was, <laughs> yeah. the outside reacted with confusion for the most part. Yeah. Um, I think it took a lot of people by storm and they didn't know what to wrap their hands around it. And every time they tried, it was just like vapor. Right. So... Uh, do you do you, through it all? Do you feel that it is a fad, or do you feel that it will continue? Oh, that's really hard to say. I mean, financialization itself is not a fad. This is something that right. has continued to, you know, this is like in the U.S. extending from the I don't know, it's ancient. The deregulation thing is extending from the '70s. Like that, this stuff is all pretty old. Like people like to think of NFTs as like being this exciting new thing but it's really just a transformation of a lot of very old things that has emerged here um i yeah so I, I don't know yeah the bigger trend is not a fad um the whether nfts themselves continue to survive in their current form not really clear to me um i do think probably some version of like censorship resistant digital currency will continue to exist because there's always going to be like a darknet drug market there's going to sure. be you know a lot of these things where people just need that kind of um tool uh and it's it is genuinely hard to regulate away some of this you know it's hard to just say okay you're not allowed to buy a monero anymore um when it's, it's built in this completely decentralized way um right. you know so there's always going to be some way that you can like you know get a find a coded message on Craigslist or something to go buy Monero from someone and then install <laughs> tour and like that's, those tools are always going to exist. So um, to the extent that this is going to continue to intersect with the art market, um, I think it's just a question of like what the art market wants and what the crypto space wants. A lot of the success right now of the nft space is because you've basically just got a bunch of people who are crypto rich who are trying to diversify their assets so that sure. they can have a little bit more security of like the wealth that um they've accumulated in the last you know couple years especially 
Um, and I think, or just do the new thing or just do the new thing. Definitely. Yeah. There's some kind of like excitement around whatever the new thing is. Um, you know, we had the, before this, we had the, uh, um, uh, what was it called? All of these, like, you know, sort of startup organizations trying to raise funding with crypto. Um, like the, the ICO, ICO bubble. Exactly. Yeah. There's the ICO bubble. Now we've got this kind of NFT possibly bubble, um, well, like Which, a DeFi boom in between there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So um, there is just a little bit of, you know, whatever the new thing is, let's do it. Um, sure. Let's try and, you know, make our gains on it and then get out. Um, but I, I think maybe the difference is that when you had the ICO thing or the DeFi thing, you didn't really have a bunch of individual people who were sort of this, you know, like sexy new face of what the space represented. And now you've got a bunch of artists who are like, you know, yeah, we're, we're cool and we're signing off on this. And that's really valuable to the crypto space. Like that means a lot. It's way different than having a bunch of ICOs that are just like maybe exciting at first, but eventually crash. Like artists are always cool. Like (laughs) we've always got that sheen to what we do. And um, that's going to, be really valuable for a long time, I think, for the crypto sphere. So, um, yeah, it makes I, it it makes it personal. It makes it accountable. Exactly. It's it's yeah. you know yeah. I don't know that it's a good thing. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe you, maybe you can hear that in the way I'm describing it. I don't know. That it's yeah, good, but it's uh, I think it's something that will probably last for a bit. Um, the thing that would keep it from lasting is like if it gets more regulated. But in the U.S., I have a hard time seeing that. The kinds of regulation that would have to exist would be really difficult. Like you'd have to regulate away, um, you know, uh, you'd have to regulate away uh, these like wallets like MetaMask and ha- require people to only use these wallets in places like uh, these like centralized wallets that are um, that you don't own. Um, that would be one way that you could like throw a wrench into this. Um, right. You could throw a wrench into it by declaring NFTs to be kinds of securities. Um, and you could throw a wrench into it by like um, really updating the tax laws in a way that make it harder to um, just do wash trading or, you right. know, you could require, you know, more know your customer stuff. Um, yeah. There's like a lot of things that could be done that would make the whole crypto space less vulnerable to money laundering and, and fraud, but um, it would also make um, some of the financialization of art a lot more difficult too. And we see what happens. I don't it's, know. it's, you know, arts uh, to that, like art has always occupied a special place in the global financial markets, yeah, right? It's exactly. not like the traditional art market is right. uh, without money laundering and fraud. Oh, no, and, no, absolutely. You know, it's so. a great site of money laundering and fraud. And um, in a lot of ways, the, you know, like I said, that's that's the trend that's existed for a long time, that this is just kind of updating. There's no major transformation here. Let's get into yeah. uh, the merge and amends and um, some of the immediately relevant work. Yeah. So um, after I got these numbers, you know, that basically uh, Ethereum as a whole um, has emitted about 18 million tons of CO2. Um and uh, some portion of that I figured is, you know, due to these NFT marketplaces um, and the artists who are participating in it. Um, I really wanted to put the focus on the marketplaces for not having like basically made the transitions that they could to 
reduce their portion of those emissions or to like stop participating in such a high emission system. Um, because before I would uh, release this project, like in early 2021, there was a lot of <clears throat> anti NFT artist sentiment where there was a lot of people like poking pointing fingers individually at artists saying like, you shouldn't do that. Like, why are you participating in the system? And it's not really what I wanted to go for. That's been like a deflection tactic for decades in the climate space, especially, you know, in mm. 2005 or something, the uh, uh, marketing company Ogilvy um, invented this idea of like the personal carbon footprint for mm. BP, the oil company. Like mm. it was literally an ad campaign for BP to like try and convince people that it wasn't about BP's emissions. It was about your it's emissions personally, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And that you needed to think about your personal carbon footprint. Um, I, I'm really cautious and suspicious of that kind of language. Um, of course, there's like so much we can do in our everyday life to like be sort of better participants in uh, this global community. But um, there's, uh, yeah, it, it's a really classic deflection strategy. So I, I wanted to keep the focus on the larger systems, larger infrastructure, these big platforms. Um, I was thinking about the exchanges, you know, that take one and a half percent every time that you try and take money out like Gemini and Coinbase. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about the, you know, NFT marketplaces like OpenSea, Rarible, Foundation, which take anywhere from two and a half to five percent of every sale. Um, you know, I was thinking about the miners too. the fact that they're the ones that are like raking in a boatload of money just by having their machines running constantly. Um, and I didn't want to put it on any of them individually, but I wanted to just focus on, I mean, ideally we shouldn't put it on any of them individually. It's all of them together, but I did want to focus on the one that was most relevant to me as an artist, which is the art marketplaces. So I made these objects that would basically be kind of collectible stand-ins for all of the emissions of a few art marketplaces. And the idea is that if you buy one of these objects, um, then we will recapture the emissions from those art marketplaces. So OpenSea, <clears throat> for example, uh, has emitted something like, let's see, around, it's approaching a million tons of CO2 uh, over its lifetime. And the cost to basically recapture those emissions from the atmosphere is around $22 million right now. Um, there's multiple organizations that um, do different kinds of carbon capture, and uh, greenhouse gas reduction that if you can get them that money, then they will basically be able to get rid of offset. those emissions. Yeah. And yeah. And typically this is called carbon offsetting. Uh, and there are a lot of problems with the concept of carbon offsetting. Like it can be uh, different carbon offset companies don't always do what they say they do. For example, they might plant some, they might say they're going to plant some trees, but maybe uh the majority of the money that's spent on planting trees actually just gets embezzled by some local corrupt officials. And then the monoculture trees get planted. And then mm -hmm. a few years later, those trees burn oh. down anyway. Um, there's a lot of problems like that, uh, but that doesn't mean that the basic concept is uh, impossible. Like we've got 200 years of emissions in the atmosphere, about 700 gigatons of CO2, 700 billion tons. And we've got to do something about them. Like Besides reducing our emissions right now, we've also got this historical debt that we need to recapture. Mm -hmm. And that's what I wanted this project to be about is like basically, okay, we're talking about reductions right now. That's great. And Ethereum's about to have this massive reduction. Um, what do we do once the reductions are made? 
And I wanted to reframe the discussion a little bit and say, instead of treating this like, um, instead of treating this like, uh, okay, a pat on the back, you know, we made the good decision, like, let's keep moving forward. We need to actually like atone for the damage that's been done and take responsibility for the past in a way that we haven't before. And this is like a recurring problem in society, but especially in tech. Um, like it's really common to do this sort of move fast and break things uh, strategy. And then, you know, who who's left with the pieces? It's sort of like yeah. all of us get left with the pieces. The tech companies just kind of move on and sort of, again, they pat themselves on the back and keep going. So um, that was the goal here was to kind of reframe how we think about the historical debt of tech and uh, what we do about it and to basically say, okay, you know, crypto has been presented as this kind of radically liberatory, um, socially positive force. What do we do about this historical debt that it's inflicted? Uh, is mm -hmm. this a chance for it to actually, like, is it going to atone for the damages that it's made? And I wanted to present this as a kind of challenge, almost as like, I've been thinking it'll of I've been thinking of it a little bit as like building a monument with the purpose of it being taken down. Like I sort mm -hmm. of put this up in hopes that someone would come tear it down and said, okay, here's the monument to the emissions of these art marketplaces. Will you tear it down with That's, me? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so right now there's three um, objects and they've been um, each, each of these objects are uh, glass cubes that are filled with kind of material artifacts of different, carbon capture uh, strategies. And these are real objects and they're also digital renders. Uh, the real objects were produced by Kazuki Takazawa, who's a um, glass blower here in LA. And then the digital renders were made by Robert Hodgen, Flight 404, um, who's kind of OG generative artist. Um, and yeah, that's, uh, that's sort of what we're working with. <laughs> Cool. Do you want to tell people more about where they can find them? Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. So these, so if you go to amends.eco, um, that's the site where you can see uh, the tracker um, kind of counting up in real time, which will keep counting up until the moment of the merge and then it will stop. You can click through to each of the three sites where they're listed on OpenSea, Rarible, and Foundation, which were basically the ones that were accessible to me. You know, I spoke with a few other platforms and it was a little hard to get <laughs> the platforms excited about, you know, really um, recognizing their recognizing the damage that they'd participated in. Um, but foundation was actually open. So a lot of respect to them. Um, I should also mention, you know, I approached art blocks and then after talking with them, I realized that they kind of taken the responsibility on themselves and they'd already done this basically. Um, nice. They don't talk about it much, uh, but they have a similar scale of emissions to foundation and they've just already took care of it. Uh, and that's not a small investment, you know, so that's shout out art blocks. Yeah. Shout out to art blocks. Um, you know, they're leading the way in many ways. Um, and uh, we need more people doing that. Um, I do think that there's a slight difference between trying to make a kind of ongoing, uh, carbon offset as an organization versus like waiting for a reduction first and fighting for a reduction and then making the offset uh, hmm. because one is kind of an excuse to continue emitting. And then the other is actually like taking responsibility Proactive. for the past. Yeah. But um, you know, it's a, it's a complicated process. It's, it's a complex social scientific research thing that's going on here. So 
yeah, go to mns.eco, um, check out the cubes, and uh, we're looking for hopefully uh, collectors um, to basically jump in here and um, take responsibility. And I think my first um, my first hope is that we can convince the platforms themselves to purchase these objects, uh, hoping to get Foundation mm. to purchase their own and Rarible to purchase their own and maybe even OpenSea. But, um, you know, that's going to be a difficult discussion to have. <laughs> we'll see if we can convince yeah. them. Um, but I think, there's a, I think there's a good chance for these platforms to kind of take the lead on acknowledging the, the damage that they participated in and also recognizing like this is not going to be as big of a problem going forward and that's a good thing. And this, yeah. I think it can kind of set an example for some other people in the tech space. Like, you know, you can make reductions. Sometimes it's easier, like switching from proof of work to proof of stake. I guess maybe easy is an understatement until it still took six years, but um, you know, sometimes it's easier and sometimes it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder to have Art Basel without the emissions, you know, than it is to switch Ethereum from proof of work to proof of stake. But these changes can be made. And when those changes are made, like I think we, there's opportunities to make amends for the damage that's been done. And I want to point to kind of like the larger cultural problem that crypto has and kind of what attracted me to being involved in, in the art side of it and working more with artists is that it was about like Lambos and Moon Boys and parties and, you know, clubbing at 11. Um, and a lot of people have made a tremendous amount of wealth very fast. Uh, you know, you, I don't necessarily fault them for living whatever fantasy they had in their minds. Um, but as like we continue to mature, uh, as these, you know, let's, let's recognize, yeah, you know, and, and let's, you know, support people doing incredible cultural work that ask the important questions, uh, that continue to like wake people up and let's set like crypto as an example of uh, perhaps a more conscious form of like value creation and destruction yeah. and maybe a more fluid form of that um, in kind of what I hope is like a move away from really this like rampant global capitalism. And I know yeah. it gets accused of hyper capitalism and it can embody that, but it doesn't have to be that. Um, yeah, it doesn't. I, mm, it doesn't have to be that. Um, I think that, Sometimes people underestimate how much they're working against the forces of capitalism when they're working within the crypto space. Like a lot of people think if they just sort of set a good example, then that will be enough to kind of change the direction of the space. Um, in reality, like when you're working inside capitalism, you're just constantly pushing against it. Um, there's, there's no possibility ever to like set a good example and have things change. Like that just doesn't work that way. There's always going to be someone something that's ready to come in and be more extractive than than you so uh i think as long as people acknowledge that that there's no way to like just sort of like crypto is not going to magically be a better space even if some people set right. good examples it's going to be just like everything else um it maybe has the opportunity for some of these things that because there is a re-centralization of wealth into the hands of people who have different values uh, in some cases, um, that's the mechanism. It's not yeah. anything about the space itself, I think. Um, I don't think decentralization itself, uh, even if it's working in the way it's designed to, is something that's naturally leaning towards any kind of 
global equity or you know move away from capitalism. I think decentralization is probably better understood right now, at least as a more like a recentralization. It's just moving money from kind of older centralized industries and uh, entities into newer centralized entities. And uh, if those new entities have new values, then that can temporarily be a difference, but it's still just more capitalism and we got to be conscious of it all the time. I'm not, I don't want to be here from the outside, like kind of pointing fingers. Um, I'm also putting myself on the line a little bit here. This is the first time that I'm selling anything uh, in my entire art practice. Uh, I've oh, always wow. been very like service-based and kind of uh, installation oriented in a way that the work I make has not been collectible ever before. Mm -hmm. Um, so to basically have the first thing that I make that's a physical object that can be bought um, or traded uh, be something that's participating in this market, um, it's really meaningful for me. And I think it it might not, like this might be the only thing that I ever make for sale. Uh, yeah. So it's a really, um, you know, I'm doing my best to put myself on the line here too and implicate myself in a way that feels true to me. Um, so thank you, yeah, for giving me a space to share about this and uh, participate in this. I, I love the discussion. So thank you for being here. Um, the only other thing I'd ask is just let people know where they can find you online, uh, wherever you want them to find you. Yeah. Yeah. So find me on Twitter, uh, KCIMC and also Instagram. Uh, my website's kylemcdonald.net uh, with the MCD and yeah, amends.eco. Check it out. And uh, we'll be launching in about a week. I guess it'll be um, today's September eighth what we're recording this and then yeah. um the merge should be around september 14th 15th yeah yeah cool uh we'll we'll send it home uh thank you again to our guest artist kyle mcdonald i'm colborne bell with the museum of crypto Dementi put us together uh and this is the dxm podcast see you everybody thank you breaking news